Welcome everyone to a new episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. My name is Douglas Parsons. I'm taping this interview New Year's Eve 2021. 2022 is just around the corner and people are saying, ah, new year, new me. I don't believe in all, all that, but at the same time, there is a new me. As you may have met, uh, noticed just a few seconds ago, I mentioned Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. This is a long time in coming. I've always started the podcast, or at least in the last half of the year, with doing a mention, uh, a reconciliation statement, because I'm truly on that journey of learning the truth. And it's through the conversations that I've had with people from the Edmonton Two-Spirit Society, Jeff, Cheyenne, Ashley, Sissy, that I have learned. And they never pushed me towards renaming anything. It's myself discovering and the growth and understanding that I have created a platform, a platform that elevates all voices. But I do want to elevate our two S voices, our two spirit. So it was important. So from now on, this podcast is known as Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. Who are we? We're a weekly video and audio podcast that showcases the remarkable people within our community. And it's by listening to our stories, your stories, we gain insight, understanding, and connection. And so we will continue to connect throughout this year and beyond. We're taping this live, so do expect snafus, hijinks, technical hiccups, etc. It's part of the course. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and Amazon, all the other audio sites, make a rating, comments. This is wonderful for us keeping the conversation going. And if you are here on YouTube, please make sure that you press subscribe. Myself, as well as today's guests, are based here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And it's important for me to say that that as I would like to acknowledge that I'm on Treaty 6 territory, which is a traditional meeting grounds, gathering place, and traveling route to the Cree, Sado, Blackfoot, Métis, Dene, and Nakota Sioux. I acknowledge all the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit whose footsteps have marked these lands for centuries, especially the knowledge keepers and elders who came before and who are with us today. I continue to open myself to listen, to learn, and to understand, and I hope you are on this journey as well. If not, I invite you to learn the truth. A few weeks ago, I had the iconic Liz Messiah and the legendary Michael Fair on the first part of a Trailblazer series where they talked about how they came to be. And it's just a conversation to make sure that history is learned and understood. We continue that conversation today. It's been a few weeks since we last came together. More to talk about, of course. So without further ado, I bring to you onto your YouTube screen or into your earphones, Liz Messiah 
and Michael Fair. Welcome back to Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. Thank you. Nice to be here today. Thank you. Looking forward to more chats. Yes, and, yes. and we're probably glad to be inside where it's not yes. minus 31. Yes. <laughs> like it is outside. Yeah. Yeah. It's a balmy 30 minus 31 compared to what we have been going through. <laughs> so this is still barbecue season. Let's not forget that. I have a I have a neighbor who was barbecuing a couple of days ago. I thought, oh dear. <laughs> I didn't realize, Liz, that we live so close next to each other. <laughs> no. <laughs> hey, before we go into the chat about uh, where we left off, it is New Year's Eve. I do have to ask you the question. What are your resolutions or what are your wants for 2022? Well, I've never been very good at following up on resolutions, so I gave them up years ago. Um, but I'm just hoping for an easier year all around. Whether it's COVID finally leaving us alone, whether it's our realization that this bug is probably here to stay and we need to find ways to calm down, and or whether it's finding ways to do something about the incredible divisiveness around us where people are just so upset and frustrated and angry. So I would hope that we can find some ways to find more peace, more, more generosity, more openness, more humor, more kindness in whatever way that take, whatever way that takes shape. Um, and and I wish that for you know all of the creatures in the world, whether they're whether they're uh, little bugs in the ground or or uh, are supposedly bright in charge of the world race that's not doing a very good job of it, <laughs> and everything in between. What about yourself, Michael? Uh, well, I, I've never done resolutions because um, I know I wouldn't keep them anyway, and probably not remember them. However. Yeah. A story that I will tell is about a decision I made instead. Um, and that was in, in um, uh, uh, 20, um, 2004. Uh, and that just that, that uh, w which was also an election year for the city. And I ran and was elected my fifth term because the terms in those days were three years. And that's so, so I was um, been on council for 12 to 15. But during the season between Christmas and New Year's that year, his election was November and I'd won um, or been reelected. And I decided that that would be my last term, that I would not run again. I didn't say that to anyone until a few months before the next election. Um, when I was elected in 2004, so was um, um, Mandel. That was his first term as mayor as well. Um, and I bring that up because shortly um, after I left city council, um, I ran into um, Sherry McKibben, who oh. served a couple of years on council, and she was the first open lesbian on, on Edmonton City Council. And and when we, I ran into her after I left that, because I, I left thinking, I, I decided that I had done what I wanted to at council, um, and it was time to go and leave it for other people. Um, there were still things to be done. There were always things to be done, and I had other things I wanted to do. Anyway, I ran into to Sherry, uh, that, and we both looked at each other and said, 
we got to do something about those of us who are getting older and seniors as such. And so we've started, and Liz and I are back together yeah. working on Edmonton Pride Senior Group, which you is, of course, that. current kind of thing. And, and, and we can talk about further at, at some other point. But here we are. And part of the reason I, I wanted to bring it up is because Liz and I were part of starting what became um, the, the uh, AIDS Network of Edmonton. She was one of the original six people sitting around, including myself, around my kitchen table to start um, the AIDS Network of Edmonton. And there is a quality I think uh, that that Liz has, and and I hope that I do, is that um, for some reason we see things that need to be done, and we get at it, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Of that, and uh, I'm amazed that we are both working today again, yeah. on, um, older folks, and it brings me back to um, our our beginning. Well, we knew each other a bit before, but I think the first big thing we worked on together was was the AIDS Network of Edmonton, uh, the the two of us. And again, it was because something needed to be done, um, and we we started it. So so um, it, that's not a resolution. It comes from a decision. Um, that I made back in 2004 in terms of leaving that that would be the last term and then um, starting a new role and sure here we are Liz and I back working mm-hmm. on it again yeah. like yeah. we started in, in 1984 yeah um, yeah you know you say that Michael and I and I can't remember what it was it was something that I heard on the radio and people were going on about you know, something needed to be done about something. And as we're driving along, I thought, well, what's the matter with you? Get off your butt and start doing something. Just go ahead and do something and just go for it. You don't have to, God knows you don't have to have a lot of money and you don't have to have a lot of, of, of experts around. You just go ahead and you just do it. And I just chuckled afterwards. I thought, well, all righty, there you go again. Just, just never mind the the difficulties out there. We'll just go ahead and do it. And 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 at the time uh, uh, that um, because it, it, Liz moved here in 1983, and, yeah. and we had met and known. And on um, uh, July 1st, Canada Day, um, mm-hmm. I think Liz was part of the party. I had a group yeah. of people celebrating at at my house yeah. um, that day. That Liz was there. I knew Liz was also a social worker. Yeah. Um, and had that background, and so when when I got the a call the next day about uh, um, someone uh, the first individual being identified with HIV AIDS in Edmonton, um, and and uh, that that which was from the media asking me what we were doing, I said, "Oh well, I'll get back to you," because we weren't doing anything. I decided we needed to. And I called Liz as well as a couple other folks, particularly because Liz knew it was a social worker. I mean, she was also more than a social worker um, yeah, in that. But but I knew she had those kind of skills and knowledge, kind of which I don't have at all. Kind of thing that's not my background at all. And so, um, and so, Liz continues to do that today as well. I know. Yeah, yeah. It's remarkable, absolutely remarkable, uh, yeah. Michael. During the last podcast you mentioned the word stigma and you mentioned how for both Liz and yourself, 
working with people who had HIV and AIDS, living through that era, being advocates that the stigma of HIV and AIDS weighed heavy on your shoulders and that when people saw you, they identified you with that. And it was something that we wanted to come back to talk about uh, more in this episode here as well. So Liz and Michael, can you talk about that stigma and what you want people to know about that? Yeah, it was it was Liz's fault. Oh, my fault. (laughs) Michael's fault. She insisted that we call ourselves the AIDS Network. Yeah, meaning that we should be dealing with other groups and organizations, which we did. And and Liz was very clear that needed to be and ran into some of the stigma. Liz, oh, yeah. want to add a little further to that because that really was your among the many contributions that was at the beginning was extremely significant, and it did impact uh, the notion of how we were treated. And, and I think it it's. I don't know whether it, some of it's my social work background. I was very fortunate in grad school to have an absolutely fabulous um, prof named Laura Epstein, who just was a very no-nonsense, brilliant kind of woman, who just helped open at least my eyes, if not those of others, too. You know, you can make a difference, but sometimes it's hard and you just have to keep on doing it. And when you focus on sort of the the in ways the smaller things often you'll get a bigger change in the end and that when you start off with um the notion that um the basic sort of social work notion that that we are all part of a system of some sort and when you start to change one part of a system it doesn't matter what it is the whole system has to start to shift and change And so part of my thinking around the network notion is that just being able to to send a letter or in those days to to an organization and say, we'd like to come and talk to you, forces them to grapple with the issue. However, they do. They they will always know that they've been approached to talk about this and whether the letter or or message went in the in the garbage they'll still remember that it was the that was that letter from those people who wanted to talk to us (laughs) and so you can't take those impacts away from people and the i think one of the perfect examples was uh was somewhere along the line in there i think it was john doyle who called an MLA uh, wanting to set up a meeting and the poor woman on the end of the phone just was beside herself because, she, and John recounts how she said from the gay and l- 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 lesbian. And yeah, and it's, you know, all she was doing was taking a phone message, but getting those words and those thoughts out there being spoken, I think is crucial. And, uh, so that's a lot of, of where I, I consistently come from, is that that woman who was quite horrified will have gone to somebody else and said, oh, my God, they wanted an appointment. And can you imagine? 
And it doesn't really matter if people say, oh, yes, you're absolutely right. The seed has been planted. The idea has been planted that these weird and wonderful people want to actually come and have a meeting and talk with us. And so that's, I think, where where you get enough of that stuff going on and 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 it starts it starts to snowball as as we right. saw right and and i think that that's um the kind of thing that that uh, um brings out uh, some of the worst in some people too and that's oh, absolutely that. um and and i think that that there was uh, um on uh for many people um in many walks of life so AIDS is a punishment for people who were were gay, particularly gay men, since it was primarily seen as a gay men's disease yeah. at the at the time, um, and and with that came hatred. Um, yeah. um, the, the, almost all religious groups bought into that whole notion of punishment and people being bad, um, uh, and 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 and. and Obviously, that's a very negative kind of way. We were seen as as bad people. Uh, what are you trying to do? These are folks that probably shouldn't be alive anyway. Um, we don't even want them in our society. And which I had people say that to me on radio mm-hmm. calls, kind mm-hmm. of thing in that as well. And Liz would have, would have mm-hmm. said, seen that probably in it, particularly in her work um, as a, as a social worker, yeah, kind of thing in that. Um, so and and. And I do think that that um, uh, at the time, you know, w- what what we we were dealing with a disease that people died. We were dealing with the notion of death, and then we were dealing with with homosexuality, being gay, kind of thing, and that. And the three together uh, um, were were uh, the the push of why we were bad people and. Um, uh, the, the the kind of sentiments that 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 people were hearing, um, whether it was from other religious people or church or groups, kind of thing, and that, um, and and it, and and it was not easy to, to counter and to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm particularly interested in the treatment that both of you received from our own community, oh, yeah. uh, Liz. In many of our conversations you've talked about how you received pushback from lesbians at that time for being outspoken. Um, and when people were more in the closet and you were pushing towards things that they were not ready for. And yet here now in the 1980s, you're now out there advocating for the health of people who have HIV and AIDS and you're putting yourself out there. What type of feedback did you get from the community when it came to this, when they're like, Liz, you're outspoken. Now you're just pushing us a little bit too far. <laughs> did you receive that? Or is this just something that could have been a what if? I think it was both. Um, I, I think it, it, Stigma is is interesting in that you can be, you know, branded on your forehead and people are afraid of you. Um, and they say and do all kinds of strange things. I, I may have told the story of, of uh, it used to be way back in the dark ages when uh, we didn't have computers. Um, the the social services library would, would co- photocopy all the uh, cover pages that listed the articles in various journals that they got. 
And that got circulated. And if you were to all the supervisors, and if you're interested in something, you, you know, you just write it down and, and send it back. And a month or so later, they'd have copied it and sent it to you, which is, you know, considering now you get it directly in seconds, it's quite different. But that process of, you know, I, I would go through the articles and, um, and then give the, the package back to my, to my clerk and say, you know, here it is. Can you send it back? And I was told that it was felt that I was far too interested in articles about AIDS and that the, the staff were uncomfortable having to deal with that. I mean, I just shook my head and, and, and said, that's too bad for them. Um, and inside made a little speech about democracy and freedom of the press and people being dumb. Um, but I just, I, I didn't, I didn't get into a big kerfuffle about it. I just said, well, that that's unfortunate for them. And, uh, and then I made sure that uh, I doubled the, I mean, I can play games with the best of them. So I doubled the number of articles I requested that were directly child welfare uh, related. And, so that the ratio of ones about HIV uh, was apparently severely diminished, but it wasn't. I just added a whole bunch more that I didn't care about. <laughs> so if they wanted to play that game, I could play. And yeah. I did. And of course, eventually it died down. But, um, and I'm sure you've had similar experiences, Michael, but a lot of it, a lot of the stigma is, is, was and is still unspoken at times it was very overt and very clear and very nasty but in some ways that's easier to deal with than than the people lowering their eyes refusing to meet your gaze avoiding your questions um not being willing to answer directly or even indirectly i, I you know they now they call that microaggressions right. and uh and and it's very powerful and and i think it's the harder part to deal with because it's it's so subtle but it's so powerful and so um yeah i think it's both i mean sometimes sometimes i've always thought that when they come directly at you it's it's easier because you've got a target you you know what's going on you know what the agenda is but if when you're trying to talk about an article about AIDS in a staff meeting so that your staff who have to deal with clients who have AIDS or, or may have AIDS uh, have some education and, and, you know, people just look away or look down or won't participate. That's harder. And I've had that experience so, just so many times. Michael, with yourself there, you know, pushback from the community. Did you have any at that time? Um, uh, I, I think there. I think there was some, although I think some of it was shown as more of of um, fear. Um, yeah. You know, could I? Am I somebody spreading AIDS? Do I have AIDS? Um, will I get it from you? Um, I, you know, and and in those early days, no one. It wasn't until '84 that it was identified as a retrovirus. And actually, at the end of '83, um, and even knew that it, what it was, kind of thing. No more, and when 
how it was spread was not always entirely clear um, and how and when, et cetera, and that too. Um, so, so I think that, that some of it, you know, had to do with, with fear, uh, but some of it had clearly um, uh, some uh, men that I knew didn't want anything, didn't want to hear about it, didn't want anything yeah. to do with it, um, and therefore didn't necessarily want anything to do with me. I thought it was just because I wasn't cute, but I don't think that yeah. had anything to do with it, actually. You kind of think of that. Um, uh, others who yeah. weren't part of the community, it much more so, kind of thing in that, too. I, I would... Um, I'll mention one of the one of the worst experiences that that I had with that, um, um, and and this would have been uh, probably late '84, maybe early '85, um, and this goes back to what I was saying about uh, a little bit about about um, the positive influence that that uh, Liz had that that. Um, at that time, we had the Edmonton Board of Health um, mm. was the big body in the city that was involved with, with um, health prevention, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, Ross Armstrong, who was the first person identified with AIDS that I got to know well, he and I went to meet with the head honcho at, at the Edmonton Board of Health. This was, you know, the AIDS was around by at that point in Edmonton for, you know, probably five or six months. And we went to talk about what hoping and saying that they should be doing some stuff about this in terms of education, prevention, et cetera, and that. Um, and we met, we went and we met with the top, top dog, the top guy. Um, and, and he frankly told us that they deal with pregnant women and children and they weren't interested. And I'm sitting there with somebody with HIV who's going to die because everybody did kind of thing. And that was the response we got. I, I, and 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 he looked at us like we were, you know, dog crap kind of thing. Yeah, that it was yeah. it was a horrible experience, and 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 it was horrible for me. I, it was, I can't imagine how horrible it was for, for for Ross kind of thing. I mean, we we talked afterwards. I, I'm sure it was much worse than I realized. I mean, it was horrible. Mm-hmm. It was just awful kind of thing. And that and that kind of thing. And that. You know, and that kind of thing came out in um, religious circles as well, sermons mm-hmm. or and mm-hmm. preaching that was done, and um, at the media, and and oftentimes it identified um, the folks like myself or Liz or others that you know we were connected with with AIDS, um, and in those days, AIDS you know was this deadly disease that everybody died from. It was awful, and mainly AIDS. So, so there were there were I think. Um, um, that people necess- who weren't necessarily part of the, the community, a lot of them weren't that were quite negative, uh, quite um, uh, found that difficult. I, uh, um, uh, so I, I think that stigma um, was there. It, it also identified um, in, in the healthcare professions and the settings and that I mean, uh, I and others, but, and I wasn't the only one by any means, um, uh, it took food into to people in the hospital because the staff wouldn't do that. They wouldn't mm-hmm. clean the room. Um, uh, oh, there was you know a variety of those. Things. There were a number of doctors that wouldn't deal with persons who who maybe had AIDS. Or, mm-hmm. well, that kind of thing. And that um, um, and and we we were um, you know we weren't wanted. We we I I think that again um, a number of us and Liz being part of that is is we just insisted 
and uh, on getting in and doing things and and moving after people and politicians and media and et cetera. And then we just wouldn't let go kind of thing in that. Um, but, it was, Michael, but it was tough. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you had to go to the media in order to get the first office for the network? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Another good example. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So so when we started, of course, there were the six of us around the yeah. table and then the numbers started to grow and we started at meetings, um, et cetera. And, and um, with the work that needed, we knew needed to be done, you know, we needed to have an office and uh, some, um, in those days, typewriters and Xerox machine <laughs> and people doing some of the work that needed to be done, uh, needed to develop pamphlets and information, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so initially, <clears throat> for the first number of months, that was done at my house because we didn't have any other space. And so I had a Xerox machine in my front doorway. And you came in the front door and there was a Xerox machine someone had donated. And we, we did get um, uh, um, Tom, actually, um, mm -hmm. to do some part-time work. But we would come to my house and do it there while I was off at my office kind of thing and that. So uh, we were anxious to get a, an office. Um, the court has raised some money. Um, uh, and by those in the standards of those days, you know, it was for us significant, sounds small, but we also went to, um, the Clifford A. Lee Foundation, um, and we got some money from them. So, um, right after Christmas of 84, we, we had a, a, a fellow who knew a couple of, um, uh, folks, uh, um, real estate people and, and got someone to take on looking for a space for us, for an office space, relatively small amount of space kind of thing in that too. So, um, uh, and this person did a good job of working on that um, and came back a number of times saying that the space that would work, blah, blah, blah. When they told them who, what it was for, they they refused to, to rent to us kind of thing in that. We couldn't get anyone to, to, to rent. Um, and about mid late January, I had somebody from the media call and ask, and I said, well, we're looking for an office. You, find, you know, you can't find any space. I said, well, we, we, we're turned down. No one will take us. And we got the money to, to rent and that, and that got into the media. Um, and, uh, a day or two after that, I got a call from a person who works for the city in the real estate area, the city, I, a woman, I, I don't remember the name. Um, but said to me, you know, the city has space that we rent out. You may want to see whether that's a possibility. And I said, oh, my word. I said, um, so she gave me where I needed to call kind of thing in that. Um, and we needless to say, followed up. Um, and it was the city that rented to us a space that they had that was available uh, it was on the second floor, right mm -hmm. near the law courts building. Um, oh, that's right. It was a yeah. two-story building. Yes, it was a Chinese yeah. restaurant on the main floor. Right. And the, but the city owned the building, and we rented the second floor, and that was our first office for, I will say, for very little money. Um, and and we didn't have to, to pay for any utilities as well. I'm sure the city never knew what a break we got, but but because it was all done by administration at a very low, you know, very lower levels kind of thing in that. Um, but 
um, I'll never forget that call and how significant that was for us because all of a sudden we had a space and a place where people could come to and people could work, and, you know, real office space, phones kind of thing in that. Um, and, and we're able to get ourselves at another level. It also meant that's where we could have meetings, where we could do sessions. It was big enough to do that as well. So, so, so there were those kind of breakthroughs. And that really was because of the media story, story, I have to say. Um, and I think one of the, one of the areas that we worked at successfully, um, that, that, you know, the media initially was all into, you know, AIDS, you know, anybody involved with it, you know, they're just reprobates and they would quote different religious people saying that, you know, we belonged in hell and all that kind of good stuff and the rest. Um, well, we had somebody, another woman who, who, did some work with us uh, or at, and basically said, yeah, you folks, some of you folks need to have some media training. So you have some oh, notion right. how to do that. Yes. And so that. she set up a thing with a number of us and we had some uh, that she ran. Um, she had some background in that and the rest. And, and I must say it was, it was um, uh, something that I always appreciated having because we did turn around the media and some of the key points that she said at the time was you got to be ready for the media no matter what you respond you don't wait they they need it they want it that's how it works you need to know that um you want to uh, uh, try to keep the two or three main points when you speak with them and you always want to be pleasant they're not they're the messenger they aren't you know kind of thing in that um and i i would say that uh, i will uh, say that that we did do that well. I, I would say very well. I think yeah, it was a lesson yeah. that was well learned, and and I think that over a period of six or seven months, we had almost all the media that were very favorable, very positive, and would contact us anytime there was anything about AIDS. They would contact us to get our view rather than some of the other trash stuff that would get from. I'm getting a little bit. I high yeah. horse, but some trash stuff that they would get from some other folks that was junk. As you mentioned, the media training, that media training advice that you just gave us works today as well. So for yeah. people who are listening, please take heed of those words because it's so important. Liz, yeah. you mentioned before you being a big proponent of the education piece uh, needing to take place. And this reminds me of the fact that being a gay male and understanding a bit about my history, that the use of condoms uh, was not really part of a conversation beforehand because... They were balloons. Balloons. Uh, barebacking was the way to go. And, of course, this leads. We know that same sex is important. Can you talk about the counseling part or the education part when it came to teaching people to use condoms and that they were safe? You mean about the, the bowls of condoms in the waiting room at, at Age Network <laughs> and also the bowl of condoms uh, in the waiting room in my office? Could be that and just in general, just yeah. because it was a shift in the mindset. Yeah. Because here are our guys, and we've mentioned that, that guys get led by two heads that they have. 
And it's like, okay, we're going to go this way. And there's many times where the unthinking part comes in and what is this safe sex, you know? And so that had to have been extremely difficult, but also frustrating on an education piece to say, if you wrap it up, you're not going to be coming here to see my services. Yeah. Yeah. Well, more than once, gay and straight men have told me with some frustration in their voices that that as they're enjoying their sexual relationship with whoever, this voice appears in their heads and says, where's your condom? And, and I've been cursed many a time because I'm just very direct about it and always have been. And and certainly have had conversations about differences and and uh, you know and I'm a lesbian I'm not real well informed on condoms uh, from a personal perspective, but uh, just saying if you care about yourself and if you care about others even a little bit you'll start you'll start doing this. I think it was Val who actually took on the, a lot of the the sex education piece, wasn't it, Michael? And yeah. yeah. Let, let me just add. You were yeah, Liz, uh, you were probably probably in the room when when we were not uh, when we were being shown uh, a little bit about how to do some of the education. Yeah. And I remember, yeah, and you were probably there too. Remember when, um, you know, the person that was helping with this pulled out a a, a wooden penis. Yeah. And then took a condom and said, "Now you've got to show this how it's done." And yeah. showed you how you unwrap the wrapper and how you put it yeah. on the wooden, wooden penis and make yeah. sure it goes all the way down and that it's tight. You know, all that kind of detail. Yeah. And we were all like, oh, my God. And I did I know that? Either. <laughs> kind of like, mm. But but what was yeah. clear is you had to be real clear about it and be able to talk about it and show yeah. and demonstrate. Oh, my word. I mean, I think of some of that. Oh, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, there were people like you, Liz, and you might have said it, some of the other women that too, that mm, I don't really know much about. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But, but, uh, but I think, um, you know, once we were able to breathe again, uh, yes. oh my God, um, you know, and, and, and it's so true that the more matter of fact and calm you can be about it, then the more easily received yes. it is. But, yeah. um, you know, the I have a friend who uh, who's a psychologist and somehow ended up with a specialty in sex therapy, and um, and he often has said to me, "I had no idea how ignorant so many people are about even the basics of sex," and so. Um, he said like when he started his career, he's quite new at his career, but he said, I had no idea that I would be spending so much of my time teaching the absolute basics of, of sex and, and basic information that opens the doors to so many people. And he said, I had no clue that so many people were going around the world making babies and not really didn't understand what the hell was going on. And, uh, and, and and I think that that's even more true for, for uh, you know, sort of if you're if you're having some sort of sex that isn't, uh, you know, 
heterosexual man on top, blah, blah, blah stuff. And um, one of the places that has done some interesting work around sex education, of course, is, is uh, some parts of the BDSM community where there's, you know, you, you take classes on how to do stuff. And, yeah. and I think that there's a huge need. Uh, uh, this is Bismarck wanting lots of attention. Uh, the cat. Um, but it is hard because it, it touches not, you know, as you said, Michael, it touches right. on sex and sexuality. And right. then um, women's sexuality is generally speaking uh, fairly invisible to the world. And, and the idea of two men being sexual together is just seems so strange to so many people. And so to be able to, uh, you know, help people learn that it's okay to have a condom and it's okay to do this and it's okay to do that. Um, and more importantly, that it's okay to ask questions mm, and right, it's right. okay to say, I don't know. Yeah. 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 As we and, go through the history part and learning about people who are part, you, uh, you mentioned the name Val. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you talk about who Val is and the role that she had with this education part that we're uh, talking about at the moment. So um, it, it, there certainly were uh, a number of, of people uh, connected at, at um, the AIDS network that were involved with education. And Val uh, was one of them. She was also doing research um, uh, as well. Um, and she, she now is in, MSW plus or whatever the uh, list would know better than yeah. me, you know, the terminology kind of thing in that. Um, um, uh, I, and I think that, that uh, one of the things that, that uh, uh, Val uh, brought, she and some of the other women is, is that although they, they were, you know, maybe weren't as familiar as Liz would say with the male <laughs> genitalia, et cetera, and that they also had no difficulty then with like, Oh, Sure, give me one of those wet penis. And so I know how I can show that. And had no difficulty then yeah. with showing and saying, you know, here, here's what you got to do. You put it on this way. You make sure you don't use this and you that. Man. And I, I think found it it's easier to be comfortable with gay men about, oh, this is the way you do it. Give me a break. Condoms are like this and this is like blah, blah, blah. Kind of thing that where I think many men, including myself, and that were always a little hesitant in that. And I think there was also a myth that, you know, gay men are highly sexual and blah, 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 kind of thing. That They like to talk about, mm -hmm. you know, the night I had and blah, blah, blah. But really, in my opinion, knew nothing much about sex either and any kind of real detail um, and that as well. Um, and that's so why it was. It was tough. I mean, it was it wasn't tough. It was you had to you had to get overcome some of this hesitancy. And I think. I yeah, yeah. Listen, I will not confirm or deny with what you just mentioned, Michael. I will not <laughs> confirm or yeah. deny. But I think that uh, I think this is. I believe that it's true that women are because of our our because of our lives. We're much more experienced with having uh, people, you know, sticking things in us and doing things to us than than the average male is and so to this day if you say to if somebody says oh i've got to go and have uh, my uh, my prostate exam at the docks it's a big deal to so many men and yet 
you know, for women having vaginal exams or, you know, it's just like part of being, a, being a woman. And so I think that that helps destigmatize mm -hmm. or, or, or familiarize yeah. us with the idea that, well, you know, you just got to do this and you got to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but, and, and I know that that stigma is, is, uh, is still around uh, very much. We're, we're a very, we're a very sex avoidant culture. Yeah. Although we yeah. preach sex all the time, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know our puritanical streaks are still alive and well, and so um, it's yeah. I think that's just the reality of it. That that uh, it was much harder because not only did, did you have to get your foot in the door to talk about this disease that was going to kill people, but then you had to be able to talk to people about sex. Right. And, and that was a whole other ball, a whole yeah. other ball game. Do you remember a time or a moment when you felt that there was a shift, when you felt that it wasn't going to be a life sentence anymore? Uh, both of you have mentioned how, if you were diagnosed with having HIV or AIDS, you were going to die. Yeah. Yep. Do you remember a moment yeah, yeah. when you were you were like, "Oh, things could change when it comes to this." Yeah, you know. Um, Go ahead, Michael. No, I, I I don't think that ever happened for me. Um, uh, you know, at the very beginning, there was this looking for the is they called it the silver bullet, something that would end this kind of thing that too and there was all kinds of junk stuff coming out through the media about you know this would blah 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 and and um that went on year after year and people died year after year throughout all of the 80s and into the 90s um so i um i uh, and there still is no vaccine for hiv aids um and there's no breakthrough close is my understanding as far as that's concerned there there is um uh, drug regiments now that that are available that that so that people in fact don't die and can live quite healthy and quite good lives um and that came in slowly as well that wasn't an overnight because all kinds of medications were tried and then so to speak it seems that all of a sudden it looked like something that was actually working and and there was more work done. In fact, it does work, et cetera, and that. And it just kind of happened. And I mean that positively, man, you know, oh, God, it did mean that people weren't going to die um, uh, or, or most weren't. Um, again, depended, yeah, on, on how, what you got and when you took care of yourself, et cetera, in terms of the medication, et cetera, and that too, kind of thing that. So I never, I, I, I think... Other than the first few weeks thinking that maybe there'd be a magic bullet. Um, but having looked at what's happened elsewhere, um, I soon realized that that was not in the works and that I, I didn't put any faith in that. I, I saw that as a way to not do anything. Mm -hmm. you could It could be used by people to not do anything. I should put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think you're, I, I agree with you, Michael. I don't think that uh, I, I mean, the, the notion of, of really effective drug regimes is very recent. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, um, 
yeah, it's very recent, and I don't think any. Certainly, I never had a sense of oh, we're good. This is this is beatable. Right. Um, I think that it was more uh, around some of the attitudes starting to shift, so that yes. people could get better care. Yes. Uh, was where it was. It was uh, the shift was seen, not more uh, in the oh, we've got this this drug that uh, you know will fix it. I mean, they still haven't and. And yeah. uh, there's now talk about maybe this new mRNA vaccine approach might be what's needed, but um, but no, there was I and amongst our friends and you know when uh, when I was with Anna and she was a palliative care nurse and uh, and and I knew a lot of the palliative care nurses and uh, yeah. and and. And uh, Penny, who Parker, who was very involved in in mm. stuff for a long time, uh, and worked at the STI clinic, had a palliative background, and they never had a sense that that this was top of you know top of anybody's list, and that uh, it there was going to be a cure. Um, yeah. There's a sweet story about um, the group home on 149th Street that was run was set up by the city. Or, or by the Board of Health, sort of a place for for uh, men with HIV, and uh, it was a house, a, a, a duplex, I think, on 149th Street. And and Michael, somebody oh, yeah. called called you because they needed a fence built, and oh, you yeah. said you didn't have a clue about fence building, so you called Anna, and she went and took a look at it. And then she phoned George Davison, who actually went and did it, uh, and it did the work. Uh, so it was sort of again how the the, the lower level effectiveness was there, but um, she was the first nurse to go into that place. Yeah, and you know, it was a big deal that there was a place that there, you know everybody in the everybody had HIV. Yeah, and it's still there. Yeah, it the the. I think the treatment, the general treatment did change in a positive yeah. way overall in terms of, first of all, that that it became clear how it was transmitted. And so most people, if you're a nurse or doctor or working in that, you, you don't get it casually. You yeah. Know, you get yeah. blood primarily in and out, et cetera, and that too. And so I think that became really understood. Uh, and that, and so that 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 I think shifted it. I think also as people realized this was going to be around, um, that 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 your responsibility was for treatment, and they did that, and you started to to recognize that that was what was expected of you, and you you carried out elsewhere. Um, uh, I think that also, um, and there's no question in my mind that that um, as the time moved on, um, and um, uh, uh, the AIDS network and other groups, et cetera, um, continue to work hard to do a number of things well, provide education, provide written information, meet with people that had to, et cetera, that there was a somewhat of a change in, in uh, the public mind that um, also this is probably here and staying, it needs to be handled like anything else kind of thing and that and not not ignored um and i think that started to change some some attitudes as well kind of thing in that uh in, in a in a positive sense um mm -hmm. but that was over a number of years 
Yeah. And I think, you know, and I've heard this said several, many times that, and it, it still makes my blood boil that, that once it became clear that, um, that not only gay men, but, but women could get yeah. AIDS yeah. and, and drug users could get AIDS. Yeah. Well, then it wasn't quite so horrific. It was like, Oh, more ordinary kinds of people can get this. Um, yeah. And it's not just gay men. So we, so it, it became more okay to deal yeah. with it. And that, yeah. as I say, that's still not just my blood pressure up quite a bit, but, I, but it's true. And you could see the, you know, you can see the, the, the transitions uh, in, in, in approaches that, that were needed, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I remember many conversations about that. Oh, well, you know, women can get it now. And, and, uh, yeah. And drug users. Based on some of the language that both of you have used, I need to ask you this because at the beginning of this pandemic, uh, we heard people comparing it to the HIV crisis that began in the 80s. And there was that yeah. talk of, oh, it reminds me of back when. We yeah. haven't heard so much of that in the yeah, last yeah. year or so. But yeah. as you were both there on the front lines, uh, is there a comparison to what we've experienced with COVID or is it completely different experiences uh, from start to finish? So so um, I'm just going to do a little little side real quick and then back to your mm -hmm. question, because I, I, I was fairly uh, and, and I. I still think that way. They're fairly uh, adamant about how difficult religions were and what they were doing. Oh, yes. at, at the same time, when um, or a, after a couple of years, when, when um, th there was a need for a residence for people dying with AIDS, it was it was Catholic Social Services and Father yeah. Bill Irwin that called me yeah. and said, "Let's talk." And in the end. Catholic Social Services built and ran um, uh, Caris House for people dying of AIDS, kind of thing, and that, and took on that full responsibility for the care, the cost, all the rest. That so, so that little side side thing in terms of um, I, I, the pandemic today. I mean, first of all, I, 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 I um, I'll try not to rant. Um, I do tell folks this is the second pandemic I've lived through, and and um, uh, and and. I, I will say that that as it unfolded a bit, it brought back memories. Uh, I, you know, I hadn't thought too much about the early days of AIDS for a long time. You know, it was 84, you know, this was 20, uh, 18, 19 kind of thing. And that's, that's a bit, so many years in that. Um, and, and uh, my, my fear, uh, my rant started not long after that, because the difference is incredibly dry, dynamic. Yeah. First of all, this, uh, and I'm glad it's different. This pandemic, we've had governments responding, people, money, research, vaccines, education, um, uh, galvanizing communities, galvanizing groups, making the healthcare system work, et cetera, and that. None of that happened when we were there. Mm -hmm. We were the lone persons a cry in the wilderness to try to get anything. Governments would do nothing. The medical profession was 
not there to be seen in essence. There are a few people exceptions. There was no research being done as well at that time and no money for it. Ronald Reagan was president of the States and all the time he was there, he only used the word AIDS once in the last year he was there. He ignored it entirely. In this country, we at, at our second big conference, which is in Toronto, we hung Jake Epp, who was the Minister of Health for Canada, an effigy and, and paraded around Toronto because he would not, and the federal government would not do anything. They finally agreed to meet with some of us, in which I was part of it, and he wouldn't let us in his office. We were in an anteroom in that, where we left condoms on, on the table for him, kind of thing in that. And, and, and that was, uh, that would have been t- almost two years after AIDS was a big deal across the country, kind of thing. And that's still that, 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 that the, the way, that, that that the response was was dramatically different. It is was so different at that time. I'm glad it's different. I'm glad it's better in that. I, you know, I don't want to sound like um, uh, that it shouldn't happen. It should. That's what should have happened in our day, and that's what we were pushing to happen. And that was part of Liz saying we got to get these other people in the groups involved. And she was right in that we the Board of Health did finally come online. Yeah, they did. Did change. We did have a a house built for for persons with HIV AIDS. There was money that started to go. In Alberta, surprise to the country, we had the first provincial AIDS program in the country come from the government kind of thing that before anybody else had had money, it had it, that was for research and that and also for groups like ours. That was before any other province had put together um, how to deal with it. Um, perfect. Was, guy, it, was it John Getty as premier or was Lockheed still around? Um, it was just after it was um, Din, just after Dinning was elected and, and he took over community. Mm-hmm. Health. Also, even later, right. even later. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. we were we were lone rangers at the at the time, and just um, I'll never forget that. I'll never forgive. It isn't the right word. It will, but but people saying, "Oh, this is the same." It's like viruses, yeah, you know. And 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 ours, this was a retrovirus, which is not the same as a virus, as I've learned, you know, kind of thing that as well. But also, um, the response is entirely different, kind of thing that. And and I think it's hard to appreciate. Uh, what a challenge this was. I mean, all, none of us were medical people. None of us were doing research. None of us were getting paid by any government to do anything along those lines, kind of thing in that. Um, we were a community group, a nonprofit community group that, that we made ourselves and, and went at it, kind of, and, and, and across the country. And that, you know, Edmonton wasn't the only place, of course. This was happening across the country. Um, other provinces, did things and and certainly were more responsive eventually. But Edmonton was the first one. They came out with a three-year program on dealing with AIDS in Alberta kind of thing before any other uh, provincial government had. The city of Toronto had a program, um, but there was the city health. It wasn't Ontario at that point. And there was a lot of other AIDS in Ontario besides just Toronto, believe me. Oh, yeah. And a lot of other community groups. So that's my rant. Yeah, well, it's a very polite. It's a very polite rant, Michael, and I think, and I agree with every word you said. Um, and I think, in some ways, it's sort of typical of Alberta, where we polarize. It's so polarized so often, 
And yeah. so it'll go for things will go from nothing. We're not touching it. We don't care. Go away. Don't bother us. To, oh, by the way, here's a bunch of money and a, and a program. And you think, well, okay. And yeah. so it's, it, 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 and you just, I've seen that so many times in so many issues where it, it goes from, you know, you're the worst thing in the world, a, a, AKA AIDS versus, versus, oh, well, here, here's a program and here's some money. Yeah. And it touches, I think, a little bit on what we've talked about, Michael, uh, a few times is the notion that you can make a difference. Yeah. That one yeah. person or two people can, and in fact, you know, it was a, Margaret Mead, who said that, you know, never doubt a small group of determined people because it's yeah. the only pe- thing that's ever created change. And she's yeah. right. And I think that that here in Alberta, um, we sort of had this perfect, this combination of the very uh, right wing religious types, not all of whom were, were terribly right wing, but but, you know, the the religion, religious people who were opposed <laughs> us. But we also had people like you, people like me, people like a do- 10 dozen others who were in various positions at the time who just saw even a little opportunity and took it and went forward with it. And yeah. and that just kept happening. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, you've talked about Um, a meeting you went with, you know, you just, you happened to go because Jan Reimer couldn't be there. And so you asked a question and a change happened, Um, you know, and, and various assorted things that, that um, one or two people who just are, are really clear and really firm and really respectful um, can create an enormous change. Over time, it takes a you know, and it and it. I think uh, we've talked, may have talked before about how surprised I know I was when um, the U of A included sexual orientation in its, I think it's in its benefits package. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. And and to the best of at least my knowledge, and I was pretty informed at the time, we had no idea that was going on. Yeah. And then there it is, all of a sudden, it's announced. It's like, oh, okay, who yeah. did that? Yeah, yeah. I want to give a shout out uh, to who's become a really good friend of mine. Uh, her name is Claire Perrin, and she was on episode three of Tales of the LGBTQ+, this podcast, uh, now known as Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. Uh, a week ago, we were uh, working, doing Pride Corner, and I mentioned you, Liz, and she stopped and she said how grateful she was for this podcast series because she never saw herself locally until she watched the interview with Liz and, of course, the subsequent one with both of you. So my friend Claire, I see as the modern day Liz Messiah out there, she was protesting the street preachers uh, a yeah. year before we started Pride Corner. Uh, she's the rainbow warrior princess, or as the religious uh, nuts call her, the devil's daughter. But she's <laughs> out there also. She created a group called Water Warriors Yeg. And every Thursday night, including last night with minus 50 weather, they're out there feeding the homeless, clothing the homeless, 
they're doing God's work in so many ways. But I wanted to make mention of this, Liz, because she mentioned the fact that she was honored to learn more about you because she didn't know who you were beforehand. But now she knows that there's guidance and there's people who whose footsteps she follows in, in many ways. And she's like the most soft-spoken, outspoken person there ever is. <laughs> I, I make mention of it because, Liz, you've mentioned how when you just do small steps, you make significant change. Yeah, yeah. And when both of you were talking about the AIDS network, Michael mentioned the numerous number of women who were behind the scenes uh, educating, researching, doing those type of things. This is my little bit of a rant here at the moment. And I am getting to a point. Our community is very divided in many ways. Um, the number of lesbians I have as personal friends in my life are not as many as it should be, as it goes with other communities. Liz, the women could have just ignored this AIDS crisis mm -hmm. and just said, hey, it's just the thing that guys are going through. But it didn't happen that way. Mm -mm. The women were at the forefront. And there's a reason why the L is now before the G within the LGBTQ, because it's making notice that women helped us get through this pandemic oh, yeah. and it's the women that has kept us alive liz just and i'm and michael i'm going to come back to you afterwards yeah. with this in the same type of question liz why was it so important then as well as today for you to step up and take care of us who needed people like you. It's not just because you're a warm, cuddly woman. Why, why, why did you plus so many other women do this? Because if we can't, there's lots of reasons. Um, some of the more obvious ones are that women have been, are the caregivers of the of the world that that we come and we you know we fix things we support things we we look after things um we understood that these men that we were concerned about could be our brothers our sons our fathers our uncles and so i think that for some and i've had conversations with some women about you know, when they saw the, the 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 hatred and the nastiness, they wanted to step in because they couldn't imagine somebody that they cared for having to go through that. And I think that, that that's a big piece of it, that, uh, you know, when you start to think about, well, it could be my, you know, it could have been my brother or, or son or whoever. Uh, and I think that uh, women are, are, you know, you almost hate to say it, but we're, we are socialized to be the nurturers and the caregivers. And so we had to step forward in things that were more difficult for the men to try and get their heads around and how to do it. 
um, we were able to just step forward because we know about looking after the, the sick and the wounded and babies and, and having to cope in really difficult situations in which the men have been otherwise occupied. And so it just made sense that, that that's what we would do. Um, and I've had that conversation with, with many. Um, the disturbing part for me, and I've said this a whole bunch of times, is, is, is the done by and large. Um, people think about uh, our community and they think about um, the gay men. And for whatever reason, the, the women haven't been uh, in, in the forefront as much. Some of you, Michael, I know has heard me go on about this in the past, so I won't be, berate people again. <laughs> but I think that it's 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 very true. Again, I mean, for me personally, it comes down to well, somebody needs something, so you so I guess we better go do it. And there were a lot of women um, who were being affected one way or the other, but we're also concerned that wait a minute, this isn't okay. You don't do this to this nice young man. He's a kid. He, you know, uh, he he didn't intentionally go out and get this. It just happened to him, and so we'll we'll look after we'll look after him. But I think that there was a lot of of uh, that caregiving and mothering instinct that that even in those of us who don't have children, um, we're acting upon. You know, and I've talked with the vows of the world or, or you know, various women who say, well, you know, they're sick people. We need to look after them. And and so they did. And you see that in so many situations um, around the world that uh, that is, is pretty common, actually. But the part that still, as I say, sticks in my craw is that... Um, for the work of the women to be brought front and center and just automatically included is, is still quite rare. And, uh, but we're doing some of that today and that's fabulous. Absolutely. And this platform, whatever this platform is, that's being created will always, always elevate. Uh, and how that gets done is just making sure that the Les Messiahs of the world are known. I've said it many times to you, Liz, it's just an honor. And I can tell you from the women uh, who are now active parts of my life, who are part of this rainbow community, they are thankful that they are able to hear your words because they needed to hear uh, the words as well. Uh, so it's very important. Uh, Michael, here's the hard question uh, for you, and it's putting you on the spot as well. Why is it? Why is it us as gay men that we're not talking about the women who helped us and who have led the way? And, you know, we get the limelight, you know, we're, we, we get noticed that the media comes to us first. What is it that, why is that? And what do we need to do to make sure that we're not the only voices? Yeah. Um, that's probably, um, um, 
I, I, I probably don't have um, uh, real good answers. Some of it has to do with, with again, um, society and the way it's structured is, is you know, mm-hmm. dominance to speak of and that uh, in all over the place. And that's the, there's part of that. I, I think there are um, efforts to, um, n- to, to not let that dominate. Uh, but we see that even in political life. I mean, we've only mm-hmm. had one female mayor kind of thing that who was, in my opinion, a, a remarkable mayor, one of the, uh, uh, certainly the best w- mayor I worked with. And I worked with three different mayors. Uh, John yeah, John Rammer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and number of members of council. Um, uh, when I was on council, there were a number of women there too, and who I worked with extensively, kind of thing. And that, and as a matter of fact, but but I realized that the shift is not there, and I, I think that's also with with the media. Um, um, I, but I also think that that's a larger social kinds of mm-hmm. uh, thing as well. That that uh, many uh, um, some. And I, I know of, and so says Liz, a number of gay men that, that are not comfortable with women, period, mm-hmm. I, you know, kind of thing in that. Um, I don't think that's a majority at all that are that far. I, but I think there are a lot of men that, that just aren't as, as acquainted. Um, Liz's comment about the, the, the nurturing and the rest of them, I think that's a social society kind of expectation mm-hmm. of women. And it's, and it's somehow drilled into them at very early ages. I mean, drilled isn't quite the right word, but the expectation is, and it's there. And that, that men isn't, aren't necessarily expected to take that kind of role. Um, so for some of us to, who, who work at some of this, it is um, having to uh, readjust um, some of our thinking, which is never perfect. Kind of thing. But, but I, um, I've been fortunate that, that particularly and, and dealing with with um, things that that affect um, myself as a gay man um, and and the community of, of being uh, uh, having a number of very um, uh, uh, women help me through all that and to work with uh, them and hopefully um, uh, many of them I think work see that I work pretty well I've learned a lot not enough uh, there's still more to learn kind of thing in that um, um, and and if, if, been pretty conscientious that that um uh as Liz says it, it's a group of people it's not one person kind of thing in that um AIDS network would have never gotten anywhere if there wasn't a group of us that worked at it mm-hmm. and other people come to do it it was a lot of work for a lot of people yeah kind of thing that. just like my first election had a hundred volunteers doing the work mm-hmm. there's no yeah. way I could knock on and talk to 40, yeah, yeah. 50, 60,000 people in the ward kind of thing in that. Um, so, yeah, Can yeah, I just so I add, a, add a thought to that in that when you're part of this community, it's really hard to, to find yourself established within a small group or a community where yeah, you yeah. feel, where you just feel ordinary. And, um, and therefore safe. And it's hard work to, to find that and create that. And so for a lot of people, once they've found that, they don't have a whole lot of energy for much else. And, and so, you know, and so many women have had uh, issues around uh, sexual assault and sexual abuse. A lot of gay men have as well. So it gets very muddy as to what people are actually reacting to. Yeah. But um, 
but I do, you know, I sure understand. Um, and the paradox is that we worked so hard to create a community. And now that we've got legal autonomy and, and rights and are more protected, we're not as segregated as we were in many ways. And yeah. so in some ways it's even harder to find community. Very much so. You know, I've had, I've had lots of people say, how do I, how do I meet people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I say, well, you just have to be out in the world because we're everywhere, but you have to be you know, <laughs> out there. But so I think that it's 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 a complex issue of yeah. um, of uh, support from our from our emotional peers, and and as well as the sociocultural expectations. And you're right, Michael. Um, the world is still very much male dominated and lots of work to be done, but, uh, and, and it is changing. It is changing. And yeah, yeah. so that's, that's sort of where we are. So as we come to the end of our conversation here today, uh, we focus primarily with HIV and the AIDS, a little bit with what's taking place today with our COVID lives a resolution for tomorrow. When it comes to this topic, what do people today need to learn about what took place beginning in the 80s? Hmm. Um, it was... Ignorance and fear-based. And the more information and education and the more contact the more personal contact you can have with the with the fear feared person the sooner you'll realize that there's no need for the fear or very little need for the fear and that's why i think organizations and networking and and contact are so crucial yeah. because um that's the most effective way of breaking down the fears the stigmas the stereotypes yeah um but there's still lots of work to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, um, I would say as I kind of um, said at the beginning, when uh, Liz and I were talking that, that the, for some reason um, uh, we, we saw things and got at it. Um, I, I, I don't know exactly where it comes from within, uh, but it does. It was like, okay, let's do something. Um, so I think there, th that's a bit of what I would say. I would also say, much as, as Liz has said, is, is that, um, uh, my hope is that we've done some things that have helped make changes, that there's a huge amount more to do that, that need to be worked on, whether it's youth, um, uh, whether it's with seniors kind of thing who are gay and lesbian who never thought they'd live this long, particularly <laughs> I was busy working with AIDS and never lived this long. Um, uh, but also in, in the social and employment uh, area, there's still mm -hmm. a, a great deal that needs to be done. And the, and the whole notion of um, the, the diversity within our community needs to be mm -hmm. both recognized and, and uh, done a lot more as well. So, so there's lots to do kind of thing that, um, and hopefully this will, some of what we have done and what we're talking about will um, uh, assist people uh, to kind of see that, um, you know, get at it, mm. do it. So that's my thoughts. And, 
And if you go at it with a with a good attitude, you'll have fun. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You'll you'll yeah. never have, you know, so so yeah. it's it's tough it's tough, it's difficult, and uh and and yeah. you can still have fun. Yeah. Well, the members of Pride Corner on White, the organizers, uh today, before we do our New Year's celebration tonight on White Avenue, we're actually going to go and eat food together for the first good. time ever. And oh, that's good. all because of having conversations with both of you when you're like, have to have fun and have to have food. And so <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. it is going to be on this day. I appreciate everything. And we're going to come back again, uh, continue this conversation. Others are going to join uh, as we just share conversations, share as people exchange ideas, thoughts of where they were then. Um, the Trailblazer series is not just Liz, Messiah, and Michael Fair. There's yeah. others who will be joining in as well. I hope all of you take the time to listen. Uh, next time, Liz and Michael, when we come back together, let's talk about employment. Let's talk about other things as well. Uh, so much more. But again, Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Enjoy your dinner tonight. Oh, I will. It's a hot pot. So how can I not? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Happy New Year. Thank you. And Happy New Year to both of you as well. On behalf of Liz Messiah and Michael Fair, my name is Douglas Parsons, host of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, reminding you to be good, be safe, and always text when you get home. Until next time, everybody. Bye-bye. Happy New Year.